Galatians chapter three. So last week I did a Q&A and I mentioned a word and I knew I wasn't pronouncing it right, but there's something weird that happens when you're in front of people. It's like your brain actually rebels against you. It's like, I'm not gonna let you get that right. Yep, I'm not gonna let you say that right. Why not? Why not? So it's Wesleyan, their view of grace And I don't know how I pronounced it, but I knew I was pronouncing it wrong and I was struggling with it. It's called prevenient grace. That's the right way to say it. So that makes me feel better. (laughs) All right, so Galatians 3 starts in an interesting way. When you think about a child, how does a child learn? Do they sit and listen to an hour long lecture? Let me lecture you on this young man. Do they do that? Do they read books and learn from that? Do they memorize? No, how do kids learn? They ask questions, right? Constant questions. If they can't think of a good question, what question do they ask? Why, Why? right? It doesn't matter what your answer is. You can always say why again. You can do it for infinity. One of my kids did. Like just use it, because I said so, right? That's where you get eventually. That's how you stop the why, okay? It's a great way to learn. So Galatians begins, this new section, chapter one and two was history 101, and it's the gospel. Chapters three and four is theology 101, and it's faith. But before Paul launches into the meat of what he's gonna talk about when it comes to faith, he asks these five questions. And the answers to these five questions, if you answer these questions well, I think you deal with about two thirds of what believers will try to ask or wonder about. If you can get these five questions, they're that brilliant, okay? So all we're gonna do tonight is try to give you a brief overview of these five questions. If you're new, you haven't been here for Galatians, let me present it to you like this. Here's what Galatians is. It's a book that tells you and me who's in, who wins, who becomes part of God's extended family, going all the way back to Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. That's who gets in. So there's a group inside the church of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, and they were former Pharisees and they knew this. They knew how important it was for you to be righteous. That if you wanna be on the inside, if you wanna win, you have to be righteous. Here's what they believed. You get righteousness through Torah observance, Torah just means law, and through sacrifices that cover your blunders. So they believe If we observe the Torah correctly and we make sacrifices, then we are righteous. Enter Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not in. Now that was a radical statement. That'd be like me saying today, you've gotta be better than Mother Teresa better than Billy Graham, better than Jonathan Edwards, better than Martin Luther, better than John Calvin, better than Myron Heverly, whoever your hero happens to be, you've gotta be better than them. And we'd be like, wow, that's impossible. I can't do that, right? 
So Galatians, the answer in Galatians is this, and it's simple. Jesus Christ, God the Son, Messiah, what is true about him becomes true about you by faith. That everything that he is and everything that he earned and his righteousness becomes true about you the moment you put your faith in him. And that's the big idea of Galatians. Because the Pharisees had come back in and were saying, no, it's Torah and sacrifice again. Faith in Jesus is great, but you also need Torah, you need law, and you need sacrifices, all right? So that's, that's the battle. And so now he's presented the gospel, chapters one and two, and now he's gonna get into faith, but first, five questions, and here they are. Verse one, chapter three. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Five huge questions in here. I have thought if I ever do a new believers study, I would take 40 minutes on each of these questions and then 20 minutes of Q and A. Because I think they cover the vast majority of what people are concerned with, all right? So let's look at them. Question number one is this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who tricked you? He calls them fools. But the word means in the Greek, you're not thinking, you're stupid. He had not read how to win friends and influence people. Right? How would you feel about that? How would you like it if in the middle of me doing a sermon, I just say, you guys are a bunch of morons. You guys are idiots. He does it twice to them, right? You wouldn't come back next week. Paul is so angry here. He's just like, oh, and what he's doing here is he's trying to present a worldview that's really, really important, I think, for everyone to try to grasp. Who tricked you? Who tricked you? Was it a bunch of atheists on YouTube? Mm -mm. Was it a bunch of pagan Wiccans? Uh-uh. Where'd the trickery come from? Inside the church. People sitting in the pews. People right next to you, right? They were inside. That's where it came from. They had been told bad theology and that bad theology had begun to steer them away from Jesus and the gospel. And it happened inside the church. Just because a book is sold at a Christian bookstore does not mean it's good. Just because someone says they believe in Jesus does not mean everything that they say is from Jesus. Just because someone is at church does not mean they're here in church because of Jesus. Some people come to church for reasons other than Jesus. I know that's shocking to you, but it happens all the time. And that's the worldview 
Paul is trying to tell us. That the, the, the world we live in is not safe. And if you begin to read the, old, the, the last epistles, let's say 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, James, First uh, and Second Peter, First John, what you see in there, there is a theme through all of those because they're written a little bit later and all of them warn, look out for deception. Look out for deception. It's gonna come for you. There are people that will deceive you. And 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it like this, verse chapter 11. He said, Satan comes and he masquerades as an angel of light. Good things, not bad things, right? We think Satan's gonna come with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And Paul says, no way. He might come that way for an unbeliever, but for a believer, he's gonna come with light. Hey, this is the right way. Hey, he's gonna come in all the, having a theology that, you know what, makes sense. That's the way he'll come. And so we gotta have, we gotta be careful. So Paul is presenting an idea that I think we all have to get, and it's this. Believers, I think sometimes, think the world is a playground. And I believe the, battle, the Bible screams from Genesis 3, actually you can go back to Genesis 1, the very creation of mankind, subdue the earth. That word subdue is a military term. There's an enemy, subdue him. We find that enemy in chapter three, a snake. I think the Bible presents earth as a battleground between us, his image bearers, and a fallen crew that's called demons and Satan and uh, demagogues and all these names in the Old Testament. That it's a battle. And so there's battle like terms used, Ephesians 6. The, almost the entire chapter is what? Put on the armor of God. Paul writes to Timothy, his last letter to him, 2 Timothy 2, verse three. Be a good soldier. Paul at the end of his life says what? I fought the good fight of faith. Military terms. You just look throughout the Bible. Military. That it is a battle. There's gonna be a battle. That's a worldview we have to receive into our minds and embrace. Because then that puts your radar up so you know, look out. Look out. So a number of months ago, uh, the staff, we got away, it was back in April, six months, seven months ago, and we went over to Bend and uh, I just had a series of questions that I wanted us to go over, kind of like Paul does here, just questions. And the first question I asked was this, what is church? Let's, let's just tear everything down, let's get to just core stuff. What do we believe church is? What is this thing that we do when we gather together? What is church? And so we kind of bantered around ideas and, and, and very good, good, great discussion. And what I said is, I think there are four main ways through history of how people have done church. The first is called the confessing church. The confessing church is all about the Bible. And so if you go to a confessing church, what you'll see is Bible study and on stage, there'll be a pulpit because they're gonna be preaching. So that's one kind of church, confessing Bible. The second is called uh, a liturgical church. And a liturgical church, the, the most important thing to them is the Eucharist. And so what you'll see in that church taking center stage is usually a table with communion on it because that's the crescendo of their service will be taking communion. The third major one is a pietistic church. And so they're the church that it's about 
praise and worship. They're going to have a really big stage and the band is going to consume most of the stage because it's about praise and worship, right? The third one or the fourth one, the last one um, is a culturist, culturalist kind of church. And what they believe it's, it's about fellowship. So the, the, the main service is usually small, but then the fellowship hall is this big room where you have potlucks and you're talking about social justice and you're out there doing, you're, you're, it's about the culture. And those are the big four. And I said, as normal, I'm an antagonist. And I think there's truth in each one of those. But I think that if you look at the words of Jesus, the first time he talks about a church, it's very interesting. It's Matthew 16. He talks to Peter, says, hey, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Yeah, great. And then he says, on this rock, the rock of your confession that I am the Christ, I will build my church. First time Jesus talks about church. And then what does he say right after that? And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What is Jesus saying right there? There's gonna be a battle. Know this, there's gonna be a battle. Good news is you won't be defeated. But the very first thing Jesus says right when he mentions church, prepare for a battle. So I said, my idea of church, my thing about churches, and I don't, didn't have a better term than this, to me, it's the call of duty. That when you believe in Jesus, you're not Sweden anymore. You're no longer a neutral territory. You have now taken sides in this cosmic battle that goes all the way back to the design of humans. Humans, you're my, you're my image bearers, subdue the earth. There's an evil here, subdue it. And the minute you become a believer, you engage in this battle. I think that's what Paul's trying to unpack for him. Look, guys, don't go around thinking everybody's on your team. There's a battle and there are people that are gonna wanna deceive you and take you out, right? And so we're supposed to fight, but the way that we fight, Jesus defines it. Very different than the world. Jesus says, goodness is actually a weapon. Romans chapter 12. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, the, the way forward is actually loving your enemy as yourself. Revelation would say that they overcame the evil one. Why? The word of their testimony and they love not their lives, even in a death. You're gonna kill me? Go ahead. Like the Romanian pastors that were threatened by the Soviet Union, we're gonna put you to death unless you stop preaching Jesus. And one of them stood up and said, are you threatening me with glory? Please do it. I don't care, man. I'm in the Iron Curtain. This place is miserable. Do it. When you love not your life, even unto death, man, they got nothing. So Paul's presenting this worldview in this. There's deception. There's a battle. Oh, Matt, okay, great. How do we protect ourselves from deception? If I don't know if the guy sitting next to me is good or not, if the battle comes from inside, how do we protect ourselves? Here's how I think you do it. A number of years ago, I was commuting up and back to seminary at, up in Portland, and I was driving my 1997 F-250 diesel truck with 360,000 miles on it. It was miserable and it was expensive. So I was looking for a little commuter car. So I found this one, 1,600 bucks. So I go to Bank of America, and we still had a Bank of America here. And I went there and uh, went up the cash register and she's like, hi, Pastor Matt, oh, so good to see you. I'm like, oh, you go to the church, all right. So I need $1,600. She took this stack of hundreds. I don't know how much was there, but it was a thick stack. And she just went, pulled it out, $1,600. I said, are you kidding me? She said, no, I know it. And so she counted them, one, two, three, four, 1,600 on the nose. And she goes, I'm gonna be a sermon illustration, aren't I? 
I said, 100%, man, if you can do that, that's amazing. And she goes, I handle it all the time. I just know it now. That's the gospel. We're supposed to handle the gospel, handle Jesus, handle scripture so often that it's just like, no, I know that. I know that's wrong. I can sense in my spirit that that is wrong. We're supposed to be around saints that we trust, people that have actually walked it out. Like we had a saying um, when I was in the school of ministry, read the dead guys. You know why? Because they proved it. They proved who they were. They weren't like, oh, they went south at the end. Oh, they proved who they were. Read the dead guys. Because very often you read the dead guys, they've proved their theology. And the only reason why the books are still being printed is typically because they're good. So you read the dead guys, right? So that's how you do it. So number one, who tricked you? There's a battle, know that. Question number two. Let me ask you, verse two. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Here's that question. How'd you get saved? There's a battle. Question number one. Number two, how'd you get saved? If you're saved in here, think about that for a moment. How'd you get saved? Did you climb up on the top of Mount Shasta and contemplate your navel? Did you pray for 72 hours straight? Did you memorize the Bible completely? Right? Because if you did get saved that way, then you have a reason to boast. You'd be like, man, God is so smart and he is so wise. He saw me down here memorizing the Bible and oming on top of Mount Shasta and he knew that's a first rounder right there. He is a catch. I have got to get him on my team. You'd have a reason to boast. And people like that, here's what happens to them. They become self-righteous and they become judgmental and they become negative and myopic and condemning. And they're always right. And they're really hard to be around. So if you know people that claim to be Christians, there are all those things. Sometimes I wonder, how'd you get saved? Because if you actually got saved the way you're supposed to get saved, Romans 327 says, you'll never boast. There's no boasting when you get saved the way you're actually supposed to be saved. I think it's very good for us to remind ourselves how we got saved. God actually does it to his people. It's Deuteronomy chapter. I've been reading Deuteronomy, actually the books of Moses recently, really enjoying them for some reason. Um, Talking about the law not needed and I'm reading like through the law, really enjoying it. It's one of those like paradigms of the Bible. So in Deuteronomy 9, God like tells the people this, do you remember how bad you were to me? You were stiff necked. And then God just starts to recount to them everything that they did. Remember the golden calf. I'm up on the mountain drawing with my finger the very laws that I've given to you. And you are in that same moment down below breaking them. Remember that? Remember the 10 spies, right? You, you wouldn't go into the land. You wouldn't trust my promise and my strength because the people were too tall. Ah, oh, they're 6'4". 6'2", we could take them, but 6'4", that's big, right? And then Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then God just says, remember how you complained against me? Can you imagine that? Believers in God complaining. Who would have heard of such a thing? God just reminds them of that. And he says, but I saved you. 
I saved you. I think sometimes we gotta remind ourselves what we were. It should not be, hey, God was so wise in selecting me. This should be the proper Christian attitude. I can't believe God saved me. What was he thinking? I am such a project. It's gonna take him eternity to get me straightened out. Are you kidding me? Man, that should be the attitude. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. It's not by works of the law, but hearing of faith, right? It's not because you quit drinking coffee or you didn't go to movies or you read. It's because he saved you. Anything else and you end up making your halo shiny and bothering everybody around you. It has to come back to you just by faith, just by faith. And here's what I love. And here's what I tell people very often. Like Jeremiah says this, it's Jeremiah 9. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but boast in this, that you know me. Does anyone here know someone really famous? You ever boast about that? I know Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know whoever it is, right? There's, a, there's like a, a pride in knowing, hey, I know somebody famous. What God was saying to his people is, your boast should be that you know me. And the more that you know me and the more that you understand me, the more that you will be blown away that you know me. I know him. That's our boast. And I'll talk to people sometimes about salvation and about blowing it. And I'll always tell them this. When you got saved, how many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross? How many, right? Unless you're over 2000 years of age, every single one of your sins was in the future when Jesus died for you on the cross. So does that mean you've surprised Jesus in any way with your sin? No, if he selected you in your sinful condition, knowing all the sins that you were going to do, is he gonna drop you now? No. I said, in fact, I think this might happen with Jesus. And this is pure conjecture. I'm not making theology about it, but it helps me and it's helped people. I said, maybe it's like this. Imagine if you have a son or a daughter and you're potty training them. Not a fun time, is it? Right? There's always the blowout. The diaper sometimes is just never adequate and it gets everywhere. It gets on the car seat, gets just everywhere. It drops on your shoe, whatever. It's gross. But imagine this. Imagine if you somehow knew 10 more blowouts, 10 more blowouts, and then they're done, right? So you got blowout number 10, right? It happens. Isn't there a little bit joy in that moment knowing just nine more, just nine more and we're done. I think Jesus knows that about us. And so when I blow it, he says, just nine more, Matt, and then we're done. Just eight more and then we're done. Because Jesus does know all those things. He can actually joy in my mistake knowing it's the process and just nine more this time, Matt and I'm gonna get you where you're supposed to go, right? When you understand that, when you start really knowing who Jesus is, his love and his grace and his mercy, he becomes very easy to press into. You don't run from him when you're sinning, you run to him. So how'd you get saved? Works or simple faith? Question number three. 
Are you so foolish? Just reminding them. (laughs) Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What a great question. How do you grow as a Christian? Isn't that that question? You got saved by faith. Okay, great. Now, he says, fool again. Now, how are you going to grow? How are you going to be perfected? How are you going to move forward in your Christian walk? You ever had that question with somebody? How do I grow? How do I move forward? I think too often we might be like my daughter, Carissa, when she was four. I had taken her to swim lessons the year before with Myrna Shanifelt. And uh, the following year, I was in the water with my next daughter, Isabella, who was two. So I'm in the water. If you ever did swim lessons with Myrna Shanifelt and a two-year-old, you know this. They're all crying at the same time. Somehow Myrna would just sit there and smile. I honestly think maybe she'd gone deaf by that time. She just couldn't hear it because the rest of us are just, all all the parents are stressed out. We're like, ah, stop crying. So it's just symphony of crying. Charity, my wife, was with us. She, though, was almost nine months pregnant with Gabrielle. So just great with child. So she's sitting in a chair. I'm in the water with all these screaming kids. And my four-year-old daughter, Carissa, came up next to the pool and she's looking in there. And for some reason, she just decides, I got this one and jumps into the deep end. And she just goes to the bottom and is on the bottom of the pool. The only one that saw her was my wife. And so she's now yelling for me, Matt, Matt, Matt. But I'm in the middle of symphony of crying. So I'm just going, crying, you know, I don't hear anything other than crying. And then my wife is trying to get out of the chair, but when you're almost nine months pregnant, you just don't get out of a chair, you leave something behind. So she's trying to get out of this chair, she's yelling, Chris is at the bottom of the pool, drowning, And all of a sudden, like everything stopped because my wife got out. She's at the edge of the pool. She's ready to jump in. And it's like, I remember just, it was like one of those moments where everything just went quiet. Even the babies were like, ah. I guess it was like, and I just yelled, tidal wave. No, I didn't do that. (laughs) My wife looks beautiful pregnant. And then Myrna Sheffield figures it out, grabs her picture up, right? I think that happens with Christians. We think, hey, you know, I took that class. I got it now. I don't need your help anymore, Jesus. I got it. And we plunge in. And one of two things happen when we do that. Either we drown, we're miserable, or we tread water. And we just start treading water. And we start making promises to God. I'll do better next time. I'll swim better next time, God. Tomorrow I'll do better. And we start just making these. And church, what happens to church is beautiful life that we've been called into to partner with Jesus and be led by his spirit and filled with his spirit. It becomes treading water. It's just about, well, I go to church. I try to be good. Like I haven't beat up my annoying neighbor with a baseball bat, so I'm doing pretty good. And that's what church becomes because we get it wrong. That's not what we're supposed to do. So Paul asks a brilliant question here. You get saved. What next? I think sanctification is one thing. It's the power to obey. So how do we grow? We're given God's spirit. And when we are given God's spirit, all of a sudden, we have a new power to actually obey. And there's tons of verses about growing. Romans 12, two. We're supposed to have our minds renewed so that we might know God's perfect will for us. 
Ephesians 4, 15 says this, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all things. First Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the gospel, we grow up. 2 Corinthians 3.18, keeping our eyes on Jesus, we are metamorphosized, transformed into the same image by the power of his spirit. When you start looking at all these different verses for growing up, you see these things come up. Look to Jesus and trust his spirit. Look to Jesus and trust his spirit. Here's my best example of how that might work. Um, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 2007, I bought a murder cycle. It was very fast, crotch rockets, and I started riding it. And what I found very quickly was when you get on a motorcycle like that, guess what you end up doing? Breaking the law. That's what you do. You sin. And I would promise myself, I'm going to go slower today. I'm, you know, I'd make all these laws and rules. I'm just going to pot. But the moment I got on that motorcycle, I'd break the law. That's what I did. I would sin. It's just, that's just what you did. It didn't matter how many laws I made, okay? So I was doing that. So I don't have the bike anymore, by the way. So just, I would go fast. And fast, it just kept creeping up what I thought was fast. Um, but then one day, I finally got my wife to go with me. And I wanted her to experience how fun it is to go fast on a motorcycle. So she got on with me and we take off. And we had helmets on and I'm going fast. And I could hear her saying something, but I couldn't tell exactly what she was saying. I could have probably guessed, but I chose not to. I just went fast. And we stopped, we got off. And my wife very kindly said, if you ever want me to ride on a motorcycle with you again, you'll go faster. I mean, you'll go slower on the way home. All of a sudden on the way home, I found a power to go slower. I did the speed limit, probably for the first time I'd ever owned that bike all the way home. What changed in me? I had a rider that I loved and I listened to. To me, that's life. When you understand the role of God's spirit in your life, you realize he's along with me and he loves me and wants the best for me. I'm gonna start tuning my heart into that spirit and listening to what he says because the end is gonna be brilliant and beautiful. That's what Paul's saying here. Are you moved forward by making more rules for yourself and more laws for yourself that you just know you're gonna break? All of us have enough history in our lives to know we'll make these promises and do all this stuff, but at the end of it, we're gonna break them. Or are you learning, and it's chapters five and six, are you learning to walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh? That's that's what we're supposed to do. And here's why we fail so often on that. It's because of bad theology. Pastors are the worst at this. I think pastors often look at a church and look at a congregation of people like this, like a factory. If I can just get the factory workers to work harder, we'll do more stuff. So then there's lots of messages that almost look like the church, we're gonna make you into a factory. If we just get you to work harder and do a little bit more, then we'll get more accomplished. It'll be awesome, Right? And the main way that we use to do that is this powerful tool called guilt, right? I will never guilt you. I will shame you, completely different. 
but I won't guilt you. I think what we're actually supposed to do is the better biblical model of what people are, what church is, is a garden. And what needs to happen is that seed needs to go into an environment that the potential that's already in the seed just gets unlocked and it grows and it's fertilized. It's, it's, it's loved. The truth is spoken to it in love. And then all of a sudden what happens is that, that seed becomes fruitful and begins to produce this beautiful fruit, not a factory, but a garden. And it becomes brilliant and beautiful. And I'm always asking, Jesus, how do I tend better the flock at Edgewater? How do I make sure that the conditions of the soil of our church are such that people just become naturally fruitful? And it's like one of my prayers, because I see us as a garden, we're seeds. And with the right water and the right sun and the right temperature and the right love and the right theology, if you would, what happens is, man, people do brilliant things that the law could never do. And we accomplish things that are world changing and it's happened for 2000 years. So how do you grow? Works of the flesh or by the spirit? Question number four. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Why are you suffering? You ever, asked, you ever been asked that question? Major problem. Why do I suffer? Right? And there's all these theological ways that, that, that they existed here. They exist in the book of Job. If you do life right, everything will work perfectly. That's the book of Job. That's the three friends of Job. Job, you're suffering because you blew it. If you just did life like we did, then you'd be super successful, right? That theology has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Why do you and I suffer? Do we blame God? Like I hear this so often, you know, I don't know what God's doing to me right now when hard things happen. I don't know why God's punishing me right now. And then out of that starts coming this idea that if we could just learn how to rub the God genie right and make him happy, he would drop for us three wishes and then we'd live happily ever after. That's in all of us. This little idea that we could just come up with stuff and so then what happens with people is this, you start coming up with weird laws and sacrifices. You go back to what the Pharisees thought. If we just had the right laws and the right sacrifices, we'd be happy. And read the ascetics of the first and second century. They're nuts, man. Simon the Stylite went up on this platform his whole life and he lived up there. Another guy went out into the swamp and just let himself be eaten by mosquitoes, thinking this will make God happy. He's still around today. I had a friend and we were both getting into Jesus at the same time and just really loving the Bible and really loving stuff. And then one like cold December morning, he shows up and he got out of his truck. And he's just like, man, I'm cold. I'm like, what's wrong, man? Is your heater breaking your truck? He's like, no, no, it's fine. I'm like, then why are you so cold? He's like, I'm not using my heater anymore. I said, why not? He goes, I just think God's preparing me for something. I said, for what? North Dakota? Dude, you're nuts. Use your heater. But we all do these weird little things that we go back to law and sacrifice, trying to rub God right so he'll give us the good life. Why are you suffering? 
We're suffering in vain. Man, I shouldn't have gone snowboarding. I should have gone door-to-door witnessing. I know God's angry at me now. Really? Is that the kind of God we believe in? How small and petty. I should have shared more with that guy in the the chairlift. I should have just given him the Romans road, man. Now I'm going to break my leg when I go down this hill. That's in us. It's the weirdest thing. And what it is, is it's the way that we actually view God. That's the reality of how we view God. What does that turn God into? I think it turns God into a monster, a petty monster. It is not the God that I read in scripture. And Paul's saying, why are you suffering? Is in vain, right? I think suffering has a huge purpose in people. And if you don't suffer, you can go really crooked. Spoiled people, what happened is they didn't suffer correctly. And because they never suffered correctly, they're hard to be around. They're spoiled, right? Have you heard of Ronald Melzack who did these, these experiments on terrier puppies? Brilliant, Google it, it's amazing. He took these puppies the moment they were born and put them in this fluffy, nice container where they never chewed on it, another puppy, never hit anything hard. Just their whole first six months of life, they never encountered pain. And then he tested them. What he found was fascinating. They didn't develop correctly. They'd put their nose into a lit candle until their nose burned. And they do it repeatedly time and time and time again. They were ill-equipped. They couldn't actually make it outside of the soft, cozy container they'd been put in. Because suffering has a great purpose. Romans 5, Paul says, man, I'm glad I suffer. Because suffering works in me something. Endurance and faith so that God's love is shed abroad in my life. James, count it all joy when you encounter difficulty because the trine of your faith works patience and let patience have her perfect work that you might be complete, entire, lacking nothing. That's suffering for a reason. That's suffering the way we're supposed to. And I've seen people that go through very hard things transformed by it. They start praying like Elijah. Bro, let me pray for you. That's just a hangnail. Jesus hung on three nails to heal that brother. Okay, whatever, right? They're just transformed people. So I have this saying, I have it written at home and I look at it very often. It's by J.I. Packer. It's a money one. He says this, still he seeks the fellowship of his people and he sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself, end quote. That's suffering with purpose. So Paul's like, why are you suffering? Are you understanding the purpose behind this that is actually to move you into this deep, close fellowship with God that you attach yourself to him, not to these fleeing other things that will disappoint you? Oh, that's suffering. That's brilliant. Final question. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Question five, why has God blessed you? Why has God blessed you? Why'd you get a miracle? Did you earn it? Did you pray better than somebody that did not get that miracle? 
Is that why you're healed? There's a theology that says that. I don't think it's Galatian theology. I don't think it's biblical. In Deuteronomy 8, I've been in that section, God says this, you're gonna go into the land and in the land, you're gonna build houses and you're gonna prosper and you're gonna get all these blessings and all this wealth. And then God warns them, don't forget that it is I that gave you the power to get this wealth and this blessing. I'm the source of it. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father. This was a lesson I had to learn. And this happened to me too many times for it to be a coincidence. But I remember one in particular. It was a Sunday morning. We had one service at RCC. Um, I had asked Sean Logue the night before to do a baptism. Well, it happened to be RCC's graduation. So Sean couldn't get there till like midnight. So he had to be there at like midnight, setting up this baptismal and filling it up and getting it warm and all this stuff and worked like all night for it. Well, I, next day I preach and bombed it. Forget parts and just, just, it was one of the worst messages I've ever done. And I was just mad at myself. I'm just like, oh, I want to go and just hit a punching bag. I did not want to do a baptism. I didn't want to offer it. I just want to get off the stage and go home. But I knew, man, Sean Lugg worked all night on that. Great right? If I don't do it, Sean's going to baptize me repeatedly. <laughs> so I better just make the offer. So I'm like, hey, you know, and just half-hearted. Man, we baptized 25 people that day. And, and I was almost like, God, I hope no one gets baptized because I have such a blow at case. And what God said was this, dude, it's not up to you. It's not up to you. I'm not blessing and saving people because of how good you are, Matt. Get that out of your head. I'm doing it because I love these people and I want them saved. And that's it. And that happened to me a number of times where finally I just got, it's not, it's not me. It's not me. Why are you blessed? Because you prayed more, because you did something more, some work of the law, or is it faith? Which one is it? This boils down to what you believe about God. And there's this great story about Alexander the Great where one of his soldiers comes to him and says, hey, I've been with you and we've been battling and we're doing all this stuff and my daughter's getting married and I've always wanted to really have a lavish, incredible wedding for her, but I'm here and I can't afford it and I can't do it. Um, do you think you could pay for my daughter's wedding? And Alexander the Great was like, yes, make it so. And he's like, it's gonna be really expensive. Whatever you want, as big of a wedding as you want, yes, let's do it. And so the soldier's like, right on, leaves. One of his counselors is like, what are you doing? Why'd you do that? And Alexander the Great said this, that man believes I'm incredibly wealthy and unbelievably generous, and so I'll do it. I think God wants his people to remember that he's incredibly wealthy, and he's unbelievably generous, and I'll do it. It bases, comes down to your theology. Like what do we really believe about God? Do we believe that he's got resources that you and I have no idea about. Do you believe that he's generous? I said in, in Genesis when we did it over and over, do you believe God is good and generous? To me, that's what Genesis is all about. To me, Galatians is saying, do you believe that God is good and generous? I believe he's good and generous. I believe he wants to bless me, my family, my kids, Edgewater, Grants Pass, Josephine County, 
because he's good and he's generous. Not because I'm good, because I'm not, but because he is good. He's good. That's what this is saying. Why'd you get a miracle? Why are you blessed? Some law you kept? Or because you believed that God is good and generous. If you read Luke 11, Jesus talks to his disciples. And it's actually, there's a lot of context in that. I don't have time to do it, but he says this. He says, dads, if your son asked you for a fish, would you be like, ha, here's a scorpion? No. If they asked you for an egg, would you, what is it? What is it? A rock, is it a rock? Yeah, a stone, that's right. Yeah, would you give them a stone? No. He says, if you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more the heavenly father will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? How much more? Whatever level we are as dads, it's like grass at the foot of a redwood compared to God's goodness and his generosity. That's all we are. Do we really believe that? If we did, then Jesus says this, ask and shall be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be answered, right? Kids have no problem asking, don't they? Have, you, have your kids ever struggled asking you like when they're little, little especially? I still have uh, tucked away in a folder. One year, my daughters made me a catalog of all the gifts they wanted for Christmas. They put a map on it, like the, the, the store that it was at, the aisle that it was at was like halfway down the aisle, six feet up is this toy. Like just complete directions. Why? Because kids have no problem asking. They have no problem asking. That's what we should be doing. We should be asking, asking, asking. Why? Based on works of the law? Jesus would say to his disciples, there's a mountain in your way. If you want that mountain picked up and cast into the sea, here's what you need. If you have the Torah like Moses, you can say to that mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. He doesn't say that. If you have miracles like Elijah, you can say to that mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. He doesn't say that. If you have teaching like Paul and theology like Paul, then you can say to that mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. He doesn't say that. What does he say? If you have faith, the side of a mustard seed, you'll say to that mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. What does Jesus elevating above anything else in that moment? Faith. What is the answer to all these questions here? Faith. Faith. And then the example is this, and he is going to be the theological center for the rest of this chapter. Verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's the answer. Paul doesn't answer any of these questions. He just points to a dude. Look at Abraham. There's your answer. If you're wondering if it's faith or not, go look at Abraham. It's so thick. It's all based on Genesis 
15, verse six, where God says to Abraham, 100 years old, wife, 90 years old, they haven't had kids yet. They're past that time of having kids. It's impossible. And God says, look up at the stars, see if you can count them. That's how many kids you're gonna have. And in Genesis 15, six, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. The word believe there in the Hebrew is the word amen. You know what Abraham did? God says, you're gonna have all these kids. Amen. God said, perfect. That's what I've been looking for. A man like you that believes I'm good and generous. That's what God wants. He's still looking for people like that that just say, amen. You're a promise. You hear a blessing. You say, amen. Why not? You're good and you're generous. It's because you believe that God is good and generous and you amen him. That's the answer. And from here on, it's just gonna be a working out theologically of how this works. And it's brilliant. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. So Jesus, may you take us and remind us of the simplicity that you expect from us. You don't want us writing new Torahs. reestablishing a sacrificial system that you completed perfectly. What you're looking for is a group of people that amen you, that have faith in you. And because of that faith, we want to listen to you. We want you riding along with us. We want to hear from you. We want to partner with you. We want to know you. We want to become like you, that you are the full human. That when we become like you, we become more of who we're supposed to be. And this happens by faith. An outworking of knowing who you are, that you are the God who saves us and sanctifies us and blesses us, and grows us, and keeps us. So may we leave here this day, this night, amening you, our good and generous God. We ask this in your name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.